Now, in order to set the stage for where we presently are in Acts chapter 9, which is an exciting chapter, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we should point out that in this moment, as Saul is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, as Jesus encounters him, that his life changed forever. An encounter with Jesus is undeniable, changed everything for this man. His eyes had been set towards Damascus, but a bright light deterred his view. His journey was sure and his path determined, but Jesus Christ stood in the way. Saul had resisted everything about Jesus, but now he declares him to be Lord. Pride found in his own self-sufficiency, his own religiosity. Proud man was Saul, but now we see that he's led by the hand in weakness. Saul's future as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, seemed bright and promising, but now he's in Damascus, sitting alone in dark despair. His purpose in Damascus had always been clear, but now as he arrives... It's painfully uncertain. Saul vigorously persecuted the church. Now he's contemplating, he's praying, he's considering, would they ever accept him? Indeed, an examination of Saul's life before and immediately after encountering Jesus, it becomes evident that his life had been turned upside down, or maybe right side up. Now, before we get to our text this morning, I want to consider for a moment something we weren't able to examine. The men who journeyed with Saul. Now, there were men accompanying Saul on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting because we don't talk about these other gentlemen, though the text introduces us to them. More than likely, they were members of the temple guard. But understand, they were more than just traveling companions. These men were partners in crime. They, along with Saul, were all traveling the same road of life. They were all headed towards the same destination, possessing the same intention. They were ultimately united in their religious zealotry, their rejection of Jesus, and their hatred, visceral hatred, towards those who were of the way. You know, it's significant to point out that while all of these men shared a similar experience on the road to Damascus, the experience itself didn't yield the same results, the similarities. Have you taken into account the narratives of Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22, when Paul recounts the story later on, everyone making the journey to Damascus was stopped dead in their tracks by this bright light shining from heaven. Everyone in this posse heard some type of noise, some type of audible voice coming from the bright light descending from heaven. Unquestionably, everyone present was freaked out by the entire experience. Now, the difference. In addition to the fact that Saul fell to the ground while we're told the other men stood, note something else concerning a difference here. In Acts 9, verse 7, just look a few verses back, we're told that the men who journeyed with, and they stood speechless, 
But then we're noted that he's, they're hearing a voice, but they're seeing no one. Now, we'll put it on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. In Acts 22, verse 9, Paul, he states concerning the same experience that these men, these traveling companions, they did not hear the voice of him who spoke. Now, that's interesting. So on one account, we're told that hearing a voice, they saw no one. But then on the other one, we're told that they did not hear the voice of him who spoke. How do you reconcile the two? Well, first note that the word voice, it can be translated back and forth between voice and noise. Either way, in the Greek, it's the same word. But it would seem that while Saul heard and understood a voice that would change his life forever, the voice of Jesus, the rest of his traveling companions, they only heard a voice or a noise, but found that it was unintelligible. They couldn't make out the words. They could hear it, but they couldn't hear the voice of him. They recognized someone speaking, there's a noise from heaven, but they couldn't make out the substance. Saul could make out the substance, but they couldn't rationalize what was being said. You know, it's been said that one of the great mysteries of evangelism is that while a multitude of people can share the same experience and hear the same voice or Bible study, only some become consciously aware of the real message and have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Isn't it interesting that in evangelism, everyone can hear the same noise, but not everybody hears the voice. I pray you hear the voice of Jesus this morning. Now, sadly, though these men all share a similar experience on the road to Damascus, it was only Saul who, hearing Jesus in the end, converted and becomes a follower of Christ. Now, before you come to the defense of these sojourners by saying, well, Zach, cut him some slack. Clearly, Jesus, on the road to Damascus, steps out of the darkness into this void specifically for Saul. I mean, he addresses Saul. He deals with Saul. The message is pinpointed to Saul. It seems to be all about Saul. So really, the sojourners, these other people that were there, cut them some slack. Clearly, they didn't convert because, well, that wasn't the whole intention of the experience. Consider, though, the secondary revelation that these sojourners would have encountered. Get in the story for a moment. Here they are. They're all same purpose, same intention, same goal. They're on the way to Damascus. Suddenly, boom, light shone from heaven. They all see it. They're all paralyzed by fear. They all stand, but Saul, they note Saul falls to the ground. Now, they all recognize that there's a noise or a voice. Something is coming from heaven. They don't know what it is, but it becomes clear, right, that Saul that Saul can make out. He's the only one that can make out the words. Why? Because he responds. <laughs> no one else responds. Saul does, meaning he hears the voice, he understands the voice, and he says, who are you, Lord? Now, as they watch, place yourself in their sandals. Saul's question, who are you, Lord, is then followed by more unintelligible noises, indicating what? that Saul and the mystery voice from heaven are having a profound exchange. They understand each other and they're communicating. Beyond this, it also becomes evident 
that following the statement, who are you, Lord, this question, that whatever was just communicated by the voice that they couldn't understand didn't sit very well with Saul. Why? Because in the response where, where it's, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, Saul begins to tremble. So here he is, you're standing there, you don't understand anything. All you're getting is Saul's end of the conversation. Whatever said after who are you, Lord, doesn't settle well. Saul begins to shake, to tremble. The answer, whatever it was, freaked him out even more. And so he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, once again, as you're standing there, Saul's second question is followed by more noise. You don't understand until the light goes out. There's Saul, still on the ground, shaken, disoriented by the blindness, freaked out on his own right. He begins to get up from the ground. And then Luke tells us, all he tells us is that the men lead him by the hand to Damascus. Seriously? Like, come on, I don't, I don't believe that that's the gist of the whole story. Now, if you're one of these men traveling with Saul and this whole thing happens, you're gonna ask a couple questions, right? Like, like you're gonna have a dialogue and no doubt Saul's gonna probably answer you. See, I'm sure out of pure curiosity, as these men no doubt rush up and help Saul up from the ground, they're asking him, Saul, who are you talking to? What was being said? Did you get a name? Was it an angel? Was it Gabriel? Imagine the look on their faces when Saul reluctantly answers, fellas, it was Jesus. <laughs> he called me out. He said, I've been resisting what I've known to be true. I've been kicking against the goads. And not only that, but he made it quite clear that he took our persecution of his followers kind of personally. Yet, to their credit, at a minimum, these men help a blind Saul into the city, just as Jesus had instructed. But sadly, the text indicates, consider the men who journeyed with Saul, that none of them converted. Instead, each one of these men, apparently from the text, walk off the scene, they leave Saul alone in Damascus with no one at his side. Now, I have to ask, at least consider, why did these men refuse to believe? Now, sure, they didn't know it was Jesus initially, but they saw the whole experience, right? I mean, they were there. Supernatural occurrence had just happened in their midst. They see the effects on Saul, who's the most brazen, hardened critic of Christianity, right? Like, why didn't they convert? Why didn't they also believe? Did they doubt the authenticity of Saul's experience? I mean, was it as though when Saul's like, yeah, it was Jesus, guys, they're like, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Clearly, you're mistaken. He's dead, remember? Like, I doubt that. I doubt they doubted the authenticity of his experience. There was no doubt Saul had just had an encounter. And that encounter had been with a resurrected Jesus. You see, it's beyond question that they saw enough to recognize that Saul was telling them the truth. But instead, they refused. They refused to accept. They refused to believe. And why? Well, I think it's the same reason that they end up abandoning Saul in Damascus. These men 
were not willing to accept the implications. Though these men were genuine friends who had faithfully journeyed with Saul, after witnessing and even testifying to this life-changing, his life-changing encounter with Jesus, all of his friends, all of his buddies, all of the people on the same journey, on the same road, heading the same place, they all decided that the new journey that Saul was about to embark on would undoubtedly lead down a path they were not willing to travel themselves. They understood what would cost them for following Jesus. They understood what would cost Saul for following Jesus. And not only did they make the decision to not accept Jesus because of the implications it would have for their lives, because it would change things, they also abandoned their buddy who had made the decision to follow Jesus. Don't be surprised, friend, when you make a decision to follow Christ, that the people you've been journeying with on the wide path to destruction make the decision that where you're going now is not a place they're going to follow. Don't be surprised when your friends bail on you or reject you, call you a Jesus freak, are no longer interested in hanging out, that your interests in theirs no longer align and that naturally, if you're heading a different path, a different one than they, then undoubtedly, those paths head two different directions. For Saul, he's left alone. But understand, these men journeying with him, their rejection wasn't of Saul. Their rejection was of Jesus. Saul just got caught in the crossfire. Saul, Saul converts. His, friend des his friends desert. However, I love it. God was one step ahead. For chapter 9, verse 10, we read that there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, this is not the same Ananias that we saw earlier. That Ananias was struck dead. Different dude. So a certain disciple named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. I, I, I can't help but think back to Samuel and the temple with Eli, and he hears his name, and he goes to Eli. He says, yes, what do you need? And Eli's like, I didn't call you. This happens a couple times, and finally Eli's like, next time you hear your name, just respond, here I am, Lord. I, I love that. It's as though he's, he's been reading scripture on his own, and he's ready for the moment. He hears his name. And he's like, ha, ah, like Samuel, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, bud, coming in, putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. <laughs> I love the transition. Saul has just encountered a resurrected Jesus. His entire life has imploded. His friends bail on him. He's alone. And yet, as if on cue, as if by accident, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. I mean, is it a coincidence 
that Jesus just so happens to have the perfect man in place for such an occasion as this. Saul needs a friend. Ha, but there was a certain disciple in Damascus. You can't help but see the providence of God on display. Why had Saul traveled to Damascus? I mean, really, from a divine sense, God in, in control of all. Why had he traveled to Damascus to arrest Christians? That's what he thought, but nope. Saul had traveled to Damascus because Jesus knew that they had had an encounter. That encounter would change his life, his friends would bail on him, and Saul would need in that city the likes of a certain disciple named Ananias. Jesus was one step ahead. And we know very little about Ananias. We don't know how he became a believer. We don't know how long he's been walking with Jesus. From the context, it seems evident that he's not an apostle or a pastor or an elder or deacon. Maybe he's a Sunday school teacher, but it doesn't tell us. All we know is he's a disciple, a student from Damascus, and his name is Ananias. Now, consider the scene. You're Ananias, minding your own business, going along your daily routine. Boom, you see a vision. Given a vision. Maybe you're asleep, maybe you're not. We're not told. And it's clear this vision is from the Lord. You're seeing into a room and a man who's blind and he's praying. You're seeing this, and then you're sensing the voice of the Lord. Now, now because the command to go seek out Saul was fundamentally dangerous, and in some ways counterintuitive. No, no one knows that Saul has converted. I mean, he's traveled to Damascus to arrest and imprison Ananias, <laughs> Christians. And so to calm his fears, to meet him along the road, his own journey, God does something really unique in our passage. He gives him detailed instructions. And why? I think it's for verification. I mean, look at, look at how specific God is to Ananias, how the Lord is to Ananias. Like plenty of verification. If any of these things don't align, get out of there, Ananias. Go to the street called Straight. Huh. I wonder if there's a street called Straight. So he begins to look up, pulling up Google Maps, right, of Damascus. And he finds, wow, right in the thoroughfare. I didn't even know it was there, this little street. It's called the street called Straight. I wonder why. Oh, Google Earth. It's straight. Okay, I get it. So go to the street called Straight. You can verify there is a street called Straight. You can check that one off the list. Then on the street, you need to find the house of Judas. Okay. So he begins walking down the street called Straight, looking at all the, the mailboxes, pulling out some mail. You know, that's how you can verify who's at what house. You know, you're peeping at the mail like, oh, there's Ju this must be the house of Judas. Wow, there's the house of Judas on the street called Straight. Verification, verification, he knocks on the door. According to the Lord, who should be there? Saul. Now, if he knocks on the door, the guy opens. He's like, hey, is Saul there? No. Oh, got the wrong house. If the guy's like, yes, there's a Saul. Is there a Saul of Tarsus? Just in case there's multiple Sauls happening to stay at that particular house. By all means, there is a Saul of Tarsus staying at the house of Judas on the street called Straight. Then, for more verification, Ananias, when he gets into the room, 
What should be happening? If this all aligns, Saul should be praying. If he walks into the room and Saul sharpening a knife, run, right? Bad news, wrong vision, wrong house, wrong Saul of Tarsus, multiple Sauls of Tarsus. He should be praying. And not only that, ask him about the vision that I gave him. Because he knows a man named Ananias is on the way. If you ask him, hey, bud, what about the vision? And he's like, I've seen no vision. Once again, plenty of verification. Finally, he's supposed to be blind, right? I mean, if he's playing uh, pin the tail on the donkey and he's got a blindfold on, bad sign. If he's playing pin the tail on the donkey and they just, we don't need a blindfold anymore because he can't see, then that makes sense. Like he's supposed to be blind because Ananias is supposed to lay his hands on the man and he's supposed to be healed. He's supposed to have his sight restored. So lots of verification, I like that. I mean, God's asking Ananias to go out on a limb. And yet, and yet he doesn't ask him to do it blindly. He gives him verification. He, he, gives him, he gives him some evidence, some things to walk on, some directions, which is a little different. And even with so many points to verify, you can still understand why Ananias is initially a little hes hesitant. Saul had a reputation. He's been actively destroying the church in Jerusalem by arresting, imprisoning, murdering Christians. Ananias was aware that Saul was on the way to Damascus to do the same thing the night before. The church had had a prayer meeting to pray about this guy Saul that was coming. The strength to endure persecution, their strategy for continuing to meet under threat. He was aware, he knew Personally, I don't fault Ananias for just making sure that he and God were on the same page, right? I mean, if God really impressed on your heart in a vision, said there is a man in the eastern part of Syria. He works for an organization called ISIS or ISIL. No one can really know what in the world we're talking about, right? ISIS or ISIL. Even the president can't get it right. Which one is it? Go. There's a man waiting that needs Jesus. You'd be like, I gotta really know, <laughs> right? God, you've gotta really like line this up, get the ducks in a row, the dominoes have to fall for me to go into such a dangerous, life-threatening kind of situation. So I don't fault Ananias for just making sure he's hearing from God, that the vision's right, that they're on the same page, but the Lord, you know, the Lord doesn't rebuke him. You know what I mean? It's not as though, oh, ye of little faith. Why aren't you being, no. Jesus just says, go. <laughs> okay, and not go. All right. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, once again, and an interesting and abnormal twist to the way that things typically work. God eases Ananias' concerns by bringing him into the loop. Like when it comes to God's typical commands, how does it typically roll? Well, with Saul, one command, you be obedient, I'll give you the next one. Go to the city, I'll tell you what comes next. But for Ananias, boom, he lulled lays out like prints off map quest directions, says, here you go, you got the whole thing. Abraham, leave Ur, go to a land I'll show you. 
Ananias is different. It's just a totally different thing. And not only that, even in his continued hesitation, God brings him into the loop, gives him a vision for why it's important for him to go to Saul, his divine plan. You know, as crazy and unlikely as it seemed, God had a plan for Saul's life. We're told in our text that he was a chosen vessel, literally a chosen instrument that God would use to bear his name or more familiar with our our own language, our way of stating things, to carry his name, to bear it, but to carry it forth before whom? Well, Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. We'll see how that unfolds through the rest of our travels through Acts. And yet, I think kind of an encouragement to Ananias. God's like, but but it's okay, Ananias. It's going to be a tough road. Like, I'm going to show him that he would suffer many things for doing this. I've called him out, unlikely dude. I'm going to do awesome things through him, but he's going to suffer. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, he recounts his own experiences, his suffering. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes or lashes minus one. Five times, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I've been in the deep. I'm, I'm, I'm out at that point. Like floating around in the ocean, in the deep, with sharks and all that. It's like, oh, freaks me out. Jaws, just nightmares. So a night and a day in the deep. Journeys often. In perils of water. Robbers of my own com- countrymen, of the Gentiles. In, in the city, the wilderness, the sea among false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings and coldness and nakedness. I mean, he runs through a list. He had suffered many things for Christ. Do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you too are a chosen vessel? Do you see yourself that way? That you're a chosen vessel that you have been created before the foundations of the world and then saved by the precious blood of Christ for a reason. It wasn't an accident. There's a purpose, a reason, something that you're to fulfill, a calling. You are his chosen instrument to bear or carry his name before you fill in the blank. That's your job. That's your role. That's kind of a non-negotiable, honestly. Who has the Lord called you to bear his name before? A group of students at Grayson High School? The fast food joint you work at? A group of youngins running around the house? You're God's chosen vessel, his instrument for such a time, for such a purpose. He created you for that role. And not only did he create you, he died to save you and to redeem you so that you could fulfill that which you were created for. How awesome. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul would say that we are his workmanship, literally his poema, his poem, 
created in Christ Jesus to sit around and do nothing. No. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. We mentioned it last Sunday, but a living faith is an active faith. How active is Jesus really in and through your life? The other thing we should note is that we should never forget that while our path is divinely inspired, spirit-infused, while Jesus is with us every step along the way, it will also be a path of suffering. Now, it might not be the same or as extreme of suffering that the Apostle Paul endured, but always note, suffering is an unavoidable part of our walk with God. Ironically, it's an unavoidable part of living. At least there's purpose and meaning behind our suffering in Christ. So verse 17, Ananias, he's gotten enough. Okay, Lord. He went on his way. He entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. You can study the word scales. It means scales. <laughs> That's what it means. Not quite sure, medically speaking, what this was. We do know in other passages that, that Paul would suffer uh, severe problems with his eyes. He would have maybe cataracts to the point that later on he would have uh, either Timothy or Ty like one of his traveling companions write for him. And, um, and then when he would sign his own name, he even makes a point, see with what great letters I signed my name. He couldn't see the page. So he had to make them really big so he could see them verifying his own signature. We don't know. Something like scales fell from his eyes. He received his sight at once. And he arose was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. <laughs> Saul, I love the way God works, right? Saul had come to Damascus desiring to lay hold of the likes of Ananias, but God had flipped the script. He sent Ananias to lay hold of Saul. Sure, Saul had received God's gift of salvation. I believe the moment he surrendered his life to Jesus, when he said, Lord, and then he was obedient to go, I think he was saved in that moment. And yet, God sent Ananias into Saul's life, really, because there were two things that still needed to happen that a friend is best equipped for. First, Saul needed to understand the depths of God's forgiveness. Now, though Saul had finally surrendered his will to Christ, it's also true, it's unescapable that he had left a path of destruction in the wake. Killing people that you're convinced are guilty of religious heresy might be one thing, but now living with the reality that those you have killed were innocent too big to imagine what the man's going through for three days. 
He sits in the darkness. And I, can, I can't escape the reality that he had to have been seeing the faces of the men and women, innocent men and women, that he had persecuted. The faces of those people he was responsible for executing. The men and women he had left widowed. The faces of the children who he was responsible for leaving as orphans. Huh. I'm sure he couldn't escape the face of Stephen shining like the sun. And that face as it's crushed by a stone and the life exits the eyes. These images, I'm sure for three days, haunted him that he's overwhelmed with regret. He's probably paralyzed by guilt, mired down in the deepest of all condemnations. It explains why Luke tells us that he could, he could neither eat nor drink for these three days. He was sick. How could anyone forgive a man like Saul, especially for the things that he's done? Enter Ananias. Picture the heaviness of the scene. Saul's sitting alone in a silent, haunting darkness. The only instructions he's been given were vague, to say the least. Arise, go to the city. You'll be told what to do. Three days. Three long, agonizing days of what appears to be nothing but inactivity. And then he hears a commotion downstairs. This is how I see it anyway. And he hears the pitter-patter of feet making their way up the stairs, the hinges creaking as he walks through the door. He hears someone approach, footsteps. He's blind, disoriented. Panic, I'm sure, sets in as a hand grabs his shoulder. He's unsure what's going to come next. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is my moment. But then he hears a very tender, loving voice. I think in the softest of whispers, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the first two words uttered by Ananias? It had to have rushed through his soul like a tsunami. It had to have like been an eruption of emotion from the depths of his being. Brother Saul, brother, brother Saul. Understand the implications of these two words for this man in dark despair. Ananias, he wasn't there to let Saul know that God had decided to forgive him. It's not as though Ananias was there saying, listen, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit have had a powwow. They've decided to forgive you and they've sent me as his representative to inform you that you're okay. It's not as though that that's what's happening here. Ananias doesn't, for, doesn't forgive Saul. There's nothing about forgiveness communicated. But these two words, you see, Ananias came 
not to inform Saul that God had decided to forgive him, but instead to make sure that Saul fully understood that God had already forgiven him. Brother, it's the first word. This man has done nothing to earn it, has done nothing to deserve it. Yet Saul of Tarsus was already a brother. He was already a brother. Something Ananias recognized, accepted, communicated. Saul, at no effort or determination of his own, had been granted a place in the family of God. That's the only reason you greet him. Brother Saul, I hope you understand that what Saul needed was not the fortitude to forgive himself, but rather the humility to receive the forgiveness of God, to accept the implications of the forgiveness he had already been given. You know, sadly, the psycho garbage that permeates out of our culture teaches that self-forgiveness is the only way by which a man in Saul's position would have been able to have merged out of the weight of his own guilt and his own sense of unworthiness. Like many pastors I listen to, people, they, they argue that Saul, until he broke down and came to terms where he could forgive himself for all the wrongs that he had committed, until he could do that, there's no way he could have been effectively used by God. That the whole story here is about Saul coming to terms with the fact that he's got to forgive himself. He's got to forgive himself. God's forgiven me. Other people, I've got to forgive myself for what I've done. Joel Osteen, he's publicly stated that if we don't forgive ourselves, we will never experience the good life God has in store for us. I'm going to be as honest as I can. But our need of self-forgiveness is asinine. It is the dumbest concept that exists. As a matter of fact, it is completely unbiblical. You will not find one Bible passage that validates your need to forgive yourself. If forgiveness is defined, and I like this definition, as liberating someone from the debt of whatever offense they've committed, then consider, how can self liberate self from the debt self owes another person? As crazy as that is, try it out with your creditors or the IRS. Like it's not even based in reality. Excuse me, Mr. Adams. Shows on our ledger that you owe the government $4,000 in back taxes. Oh, listen, I appreciate the phone call, but I just wanna let you know, I forgave myself that debt earlier this year. And truthfully, I've been feeling a lot better about myself and my financial state. You think that's gonna work? I forgave myself. It goes away. It's done. That's malarkey. Now, it's true that God does not want Christians bogged down in condemnation or even paralyzed by a deep sense of unworthiness. But please realize, there is therefore now no condemnation, not because you've forgiven yourself, but because you have been found in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 and thereby you've been forgiven by God. You see, the key, the key, this situation, the key for Saul 
to experience freedom from the immense weight, the horrible things he'd done. It's not for him to forgive himself, but to come to terms with the reality that God had forgiven him. God had forgiven him. Why? Because of the love of Jesus that had been demonstrated through his work on the cross, the work that atoned for sin, the, the, the work that took his past trespasses and satisfied their righteous requirements so that he is now a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because I, I came to terms with myself. I looked myself in the mirror and I said, you can be a better you. No, no. It's because he came to the realization that, wow, God, God's forgiven me. God forgave Saul, brother Saul. You know, beyond the incredible nature of this reality, you know, while forgiveness may help us walk in victory instead of being muddled in condemnation, you know, I kind of reject that, that notion that forgiveness should help us escape our deep sense of unworthiness because of sin. Like that's one of the, the, the pitches of self-forgiveness. Don't walk in condemnation, forgive yourself. And not only that, don't carry all this unworthiness, be a better you, you're worth it. I, I don't think we're supposed to escape the reality of unworthiness because of sin. We can be liberated from it, not to walk in condemnation because of it, but not to carry it anymore. You know, Saul didn't. Saul might have not walked in condemnation, but he always carried a deep sense of unworthiness. According to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul explains that his sense of his own worthiness, as it continued to deepen, so did his understanding of the depths of God's grace. You see, Saul's unworthiness was never viewed as an excuse for inactivity, but was instead his motivation to serve God with an even greater zeal and passion. I quote, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labor now more abundantly, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. You track Saul's life, his progression of his own awareness of his own dirtiness grows. He's a holy man, a righteous man, writing scripture. Early in his life, he's like, man, I am a sinner. And then he's like, later in life, listen, I sin more than any of you. Greater sense of his own dirtiness. Towards the end of his life, he's like, guys, I gotta tell you, I am the chiefest of all sinners. You know, if you really wanna convince yourself you look good, buy a really old antique mirror and place it in a dark room and stand really far away from it. And then you're like, I kinda look slim now. But the closer you get to that mirror, the more beautiful you look. No, there's a reason that you get real close and then you decide, I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but you get real close and you're like, oh, and you start painting your face with things. You're like, that doesn't work. I gotta paint my face with things. The closer you get to the light, the clo yeah, I know. I'm gonna hear about that later. But the closer you get to the light, the more worthy you feel? No. You should be gripped with your own unworthiness. You know the second thing 
second reason God sends Ananias is that Saul needed a friend, not only to help him understand forgiveness, the depths of God's forgiveness, but to help him grow in his faith. You know, this is a bizarre analogy, I understand, but for to help us understand this point, consider Ananias as a sort of spiritual midwife. Like Saul is a three-day-old spiritual infant on life support, which is why God sent him a faithful disciple to help him navigate a very vulnerable time in his life. First, Ananias was there to do what? To help Saul see. As we told, as we're told, Saul, he feels the touch of Ananias, hears the word, there immediately fell from his eyes, something like scales, so that he could receive his sight at once. You see, though Saul had been physically blinded by the bright light that had engulfed him on the road to Damascus, in a much greater sense, his whole life had been lived in darkness. He would even say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that those who do not believe have had their minds blinded by the God of this age. See, as a midwife, Ananias was there to not only help baby Saul transition from darkness to light, but he was there to help this infant begin to process this new world around him. You know, all babies, when they're born, they can't see very clearly. They can only see a couple inches from their face, which is why it's ridiculous that baby clothes are so expensive. They can't even see the clothes that they're wearing. They come into the world, they can't see, which is why they're totally dependent upon you. They need you to help them in this process by which they begin to see color and shapes and associations. Saul could see now for the first time ever and Ananias is there to walk him along this journey. But secondly, Ananias was there to help a weak Saul gain his strength. Luke tells us that when he had received food, he was strengthened. I understand that the passage obviously refers to Saul gaining his physical strength. But I can't help but be reminded of Jeremiah 31, verse 25, where we're told that the Lord, the Lord will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. As a midwife, Ananias was able to ensure that Saul, baby Saul, had a healthy diet of the bread of life and the living water that was only available through Jesus and Saul grew in the process. I pray that you understand, in closing, that the Christian experience is not designed to be a go-it-alone proposition. All of us, every one of us needs friends so that we can effectively run the race with endurance. But there is an important responsibility. I'd like to call it an Ananias ministry where we all share a responsibility to come alongside of new spiritual babies, newborns. Like Saul, not only are people who have just given their life to Jesus in a vulnerable season, but in many instances, their vulnerability becomes compounded by two stark realities, right? Like Saul, their world has fallen apart. And secondly, all of their friends have bailed on them. They need friends and their world has fallen apart and they need people around them. You know, in the Hebrew, Ananias or Hananias, it means whom Jehovah has graciously given. There was a certain disciple named Ananias. 
I love it. For when it was all said and done, there's not a doubt in my mind that Ananias' loving friendship would be seen as nothing more by Saul as a gift from God. You know, a friend is a gift from God. But also notice, beyond the involvement of Ananias, we're told, this is how we closed, right? Saul spent some days also with the disciples at Damascus. As a man with a two and a half year old going on 15 at home and another bun in the oven, I can attest caring for a newborn baby is not a go it alone proposition. It really does take a village. Caring for an infant is not a job that one person can do alone. And though Ananias served as Saul's main caregiver, I appreciate the fact that there was an entire community of disciples in Damascus that were willing to rally around and support baby Saul. As a church, may we share this important responsibility of caring for new believers. But on the flip side, I close with this. If you're a new believer yourself, understand it is of the utmost importance that you stay plugged into a local community of believers. Matter of fact, I I don't think that there's anything greater for your own spiritual health and growth and development than staying plugged in to a group of disciples that can encourage you, help you see, feed you, walk alongside of you. Put it this way, if Saul of Tarsus needed some disciples and needed a friend, then you know what? I think you do too. I know I do. And you do as well. So Father.